Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Let's go to our, our text for today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're in a series entitled, More, Jesus from Beginning to End. And we're studying through this letter of 1 Thessalonians to see that God is working through the gospel of Jesus Christ for more in your life. And we're talking about this, that to know Jesus is to long for more of him And hopefully we're cultivating a longing for him in the hearts and lives of all of our people. Well, when we introduced it, we began by asking last week, how do you identify or measure more? So this idea of what is more, how do you identify or measure more? Because more in relationship with God can seem subjective. More in itself is a relative term, is it not? I mean, more in relation or proportion to what? And that's what I believe Paul is defining for us. Evidence of God's more and doing more in our life is not unknowable. And that's very much the essence of what Paul is telling the Thessalonians in this letter. God wants you to know by godly discernment, by spiritual discernment in your life, what more means. And he wants you to experience all the more that he has for your life through the gospel. I shared last week that in my own pastoral experience, many people make spiritual decisions that significantly affect their life simply by this one qualifier, a feeling, a feeling. And I made this statement that emotions and feelings alone are never spiritual markers for discernment. Now, I know that can be a pejorative statement. That that can be a poking, if you will. Are you trying to to create problems are you trying to trying to stir something up and a little bit I am but when things are awry they need to be stirred up fallow ground needs to be broken up in order to be prepared to receive the seed and so when I say emotions and feelings alone are never spiritual markers for discernment I want you to understand that they are spiritual thermometers that indicate, indicate a need for discernment. But what I want you to see throughout these three sermons, last week and this week and next, is that the grace that comes from God produces tangible evidence of God's more in a person's life. And by tangible, I mean something you can grab hold of. As we live by faith to follow Jesus, we will see this evidence of God's more taking hold in our life. Paul is writing from a deep love and affection for the Thessalonians, as we've already seen him state a couple of times. And he's describing his ministry and and the rationale behind his ministry among them. He tells them not only what he did, but he tells them why he was doing it. And he repeatedly shares his desire for the church by reminding them of all God wants to do. And he shows them how the gospel 
produced more among them in order to exhort them not to sit on the laurels of their blessed assurance, right? But to move forward in faith, trusting that what God has done, he wants to do more of the same. And for them to look to the more that God is doing among them. And so from Paul's exhortation to the Thessalonians, we began looking last week at five trajectories that evidence God's grace producing more in you. And we looked at this one last week in the first trajectory, that God nurtures in us, excuse me, God nurtures us in love by the gospel for more in all of life. And we just talked about how, how God, like a, a loving, nursing mother, nurtures us through challenges, through difficulties, through opposition, to trust, to rest, to test our own hearts, and to see. Here was the first trajectory that we looked at, that a humble conviction produces deep affection. And we walked through it in this way. We qualified it by saying, a humble conviction of Jesus leads one to test their own heart and motivation and actions when confronted by opposition or suffering, in order that God might bring about a clear understanding of his call so that we can move forward in life with steadfast compassion towards others. And as we do this, the Lord grows a deeper love within us for him and a deeper loving desire for those among whom we labor. And so in this first trajectory, we see an evidence of grace producing more when we're nurtured from this humble conviction to desirous affection for the one whom we serve and those to whom we are sent. Well, today I want us to move forward and look at trajectories two, three, and four. And here's what we're going to see, that God leads by the gospel to produce spiritual fruitfulness, persevere in obedience, and delight in gospel glory. Last week, God nurtured us. This week, God is leading us by the gospel to produce spiritual fruitfulness in our life, to persevere in obedience, and to delight in gospel glory. Let's go immediately to this second trajectory and let me provide it for you and show you what the text is teaching us. Trajectory number two is a faithfulness that produces fruitfulness in life. A faithfulness that produces fruitfulness in life. Go to verse 9 with me of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul says this, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pause there for this second trajectory. 
Paul worked during his time among the Thessalonians, as was his practice in his ministry, to support himself as he ministered because he wanted nothing to stand in the way of the people he was ministering to to receive his message. Now, we know throughout his ministry, there were people who sent regular aid to Paul. There were churches that regularly took up offerings to support Paul personally and also to support the ministry that Paul was doing. This is a a common uh, uh, practice even among us today as we give of our regular tithes and offerings and even special offerings to support missionaries, to support missionary work, and those who are no longer among us but who have gone out to do work. We continue that work and we extend the gospel mission and ministry of our own church through the supporting. And that was the practice that Paul addressed. But he was a tent maker as well. And so you know the labor and toil, he says, that we regularly practiced among you. And he says this, you were witnesses of how it is that we lived among you. How holy and righteous and godly our lives, or blameless, our lives were. And Paul says this to him. This was an intentional strategy. This wasn't just happenstance. That it wasn't just that we're so godly and holy that we could make it happen, but good luck to you. But rather, Paul says, this was an intentional decision we made, a decision of faith. To remain committed to the Lord, to trust in the Lord, to be faithful so that from our faithfulness, fruitfulness might come from it. He says this, I wasn't doing all of this for my own health or goodwill, right? I was doing it for your spiritual well-being. And he uses the metaphor of a father with his children. How he exhorted them. He encouraged them and he charged the people to walk in a manner worthy of one who has called you. You see, Paul's point is not how hard or how much they worked. He wasn't whining about how difficult it was. He wasn't complaining about how unreceptive the people were. I'll be honest with you. These are great caves in which it's very easy to fall into in gospel ministry. Just as it is in personal life to be selfish and talk about how hard things can be for us or to talk about how difficult other people can be uh, uh, for us to, to relate to or to understand or, or, or towards us. So in ministry and even you will find in your life as well, we can so easily play that self-pity card in our mind and our hearts, can't we? And it's not about us. Now remember the first trajectory was for us what? A humble conviction that leads to desirous affection. And we learned how instead of looking to others and complaining about the situation or the hardness of the circumstance or the problem of other people, instead we tested our own hearts. We asked the Lord to do in us what he wanted to do. So Paul is doing that here. It's been said ministry in the local church would be so much easier if you didn't have to deal with people. It just wouldn't exist. I think it's much more true that ministry would be so much easier if I didn't have to deal with me. That's what Paul's telling us. And that's what he's explaining to the church about every Christian. 
He explains why they worked. Why do you do what you do, Paul? Because serving the gospel so others could hear and believe was at the heart of everything he was doing, even the way he supported his own livelihood. By the example of his life and the practice of exhorting, encouraging, and charging the people, he was leading them beyond only a ritual of practice, but to live to demonstrate God's glory with their own life. They served the gospel in faithfulness so that their labors and their life would produce gospel fruit for the glory of God. And look at this analogy. How a father leads by the model of the life he lives. Last week, it was a mother's nurturing love. This week, it is a father's leading love. The father exhorts to instruct in right standards and right principles of life and the practices by which they should live. A father says to their child, you can do this, you will do this, go do this. Now, Surely, it's more loving in that, and it's more than just three simple statements by which a father leads. But with all that the dad says, he points to the life he is living, the example he sets. Dads, you will never speak louder nor more influentially with words than the life you live in front of your family. That's why Paul tells us that, that those who lead in the church must first be able to lead in the home. Because the fact of the matter is, people can't hear what we're saying when it doesn't align with what they see in our living. Paul labored to lead people, not simply to conform them to some kind of a religious practice, only with outward actions. But the gospel, friends, is the power of life that produces spiritual fruit in holiness and in righteousness and in godliness. Living it out. Paul lived by his talk and by his walk in order to lead people in the faithful practice that produced the fruit of glory. This is the key to this second trajectory, friends. He practiced faithfulness in order to produce spiritual fruitfulness. He practiced faithfulness in order to produce spiritual fruit. Fruit that was born out of the gospel. You see, faithfulness is important. First, an important first lesson. And it's a critical practice for every Christian. I, I'm not saying that, that faithfulness in and of itself is unimportant. It's just not the end goal. Like I said last week, deep convictions are critical for the Christian life. But they're not the end goal, the ultimate aim of the Christian life, right? That, that love is our aim. And in the same way, routine faithfulness. And, and there's a play on the word faithfulness here, friends. Because so often we can beckon before God, argue with him of our own faithfulness that's not producing fruitfulness. Am I, are, are you hearing me here, right? I, I'll get to this more in just a moment, but, but faithfulness is an important first lesson and critical practice for every Christian, but it's not our last step. I have really good news for some of you today. 
And it is this, God never measures your worth nor your value by your deeds in life. The way God sees you, he never looks upon you as more or less worthy or valuable by the good deeds of your life, no matter how many good nor how good they are. Now, granted, understand this, he rewards Christians according to our righteous deeds. Don't get me wrong on that. They're important. But he never values nor measures us. The way God values is the way uh, any of us is only by one way. It's the way he declared the value of our salvation by Jesus' death on the cross. But friends, God doesn't look at you and go, you know what, you're better than many because you do more good. And for some of you, I have some really bad news today. God never measures your worth or your value by your deeds, no matter how good they are or how many they may be. The message there just all depends on how you're looking at it. God redeems your life through Jesus to walk in faithfulness that you might produce spiritual fruit for his glory. You know, this idea of just performing tasks or faithfulness and producing fruit is one that, that is worth our consideration. We laugh in this day and time about participation trophies, right, for children. We, we talk about uh, how we're teaching and training them in things that may not be completely helpful and good, But we quickly default to this mindset in the Christian life so often. God, I read my Bible regularly. I pray. I could pray more, but I do pray a lot. And I do good. That must make me a good Christian. Well, I'm not saying those things are absent from the life of a good Christian. But those things alone don't justify us being a good, quote-unquote, Christian. I'm not even sure what that word means. But it is critical for the Christian to be in God's Word, to read it, to study, to meditate, to memorize it, to know it. But friends, faithfulness in all of these practices has only one aim. Holiness, righteousness, godliness in all of life. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, that's right, you were a good Christian, you're in. No, that's not what he says. I never knew you. Depart from me. You see, what Jesus is saying is, we have no merit before him of worth nor value because of the goodness of our deeds, nor the compounding value of the goodness of our deeds, only because of his sacrifice are we even able to stand before God. The practices of faithfulness in the Christian life are essential in order to form the branch of life for which Jesus' life can flow to us and through us but true life in Jesus always produces the fruit of holiness righteousness and godliness for many to see 
and to enjoy. You see, friends, knowing Jesus motivates the faithfulness in our practices, but not for the sake of those practices. For faithfulness leads us to a life that is flowing through us so the fruit of Jesus might be displayed to the glory of God. Do your good deeds among men that they might see your deeds and give glory to God. The purpose of faithfulness in the Christian life is fruitfulness, friends. And as we practice our faithful acts or practices or deeds of righteousness or disciplines of godliness, we don't do them to fulfill the routine to check off the proverbial box on our task list, but we practice them in order to produce the fruit that comes through them. Faithfulness demonstrates itself through practices, but fruitfulness only flows through relationship with Jesus. And that's what this trajectory is all about. This is what Paul was beckoning upon the Thessalonians by his own example, but placing upon them for their own lives. Don't settle, Christian, to be satisfied with faithful performance. Press towards the fruitfulness of godliness with your life. Let the faithfulness of your practice continue steadfastly steadfastly until the fruitfulness of godliness is that which marks your life. And friends, the the difficulty of faithfulness will always be outdone by the fruitfulness of godliness in you. For to the one who remains faithful unto fruitfulness, guess what? God gives more, more. God leads you to more as you walk in a manner worthy of his name to produce spiritual fruit in your life. That's the second trajectory. The third trajectory follows. Let me state it for you and then we'll look at the text. Trajectory number three is this. A receptiveness to God's word that produces perseverance in obedience, a receptiveness that produces perseverance. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Wow. (laughs) Heavy but pointed. A receptiveness to God's word that produces perseverance in obedience. Paul says the Thessalonians received the message by faith as God's word. Faith, not because they could see it to be true, but because they received it as true. And this was the key distinctive of why God was able to do more in their life. God's word is powerful, friends, to bring forth God's work when it is received by faith in your life. 
And it beckons upon us the question, how do you receive God's word? As you read it, as you study it, as you hear it preach. For faith is the key that unlocks the power of God's word. That it might take root to become strength for us when it is received by us. And you know what roots do, right? They grab hold to stabilize. Yesterday was a good test. If the trees in your yard are still standing this morning, be encouraged. They've got a good root structure. There are plenty that aren't after the winds yesterday, right? That's what the word of God does for you. It digs roots deep into the gospel of Jesus Christ to hold on tight when the winds of the world blow against you. But at the very moment it is holding tight to stabilize your life, it is also pulling the nutrients out of the gospel, out of the wisdom of God's counsel from his word to supply the whole of your life with what it needs. When the word of God is deeply rooted in you, it is holding you steady and it is supplying strength for your life in many ways. Here's just a few of those ways. Intellectual strength. Psalm 119, 130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. It is strength emotionally for us. Psalm 119, 114 says, You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. When I am scared and afraid, you are the one who is a faithful refuge that gives me hope. It is strength for us to hold us steady in sexual purity. Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. That works well for middle-aged and older men too. Spiritually, there is strength. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Soulful strength. One night, Psalm 119, 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Practical strength. Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Comprehensive life strength. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. Isaiah 26, 3. I don't know, friends, but I'm pretty sure what we've just seen in these simple verses is that the word of God, when received by faith, is a steadying, stabilizing force and a strength for every part of life for you. When the word doesn't seem to be working, You need to start asking, am I receiving God's word by faith as the word of God? Or am I just listening to it like all the other noise in the world? When you receive God's word by faith, you receive Jesus and his work in you. It strengthens you to persevere in obedience to that word while God brings his will in you and through you to bear. Thessalonians proved God's faithfulness. That's what Paul says to him. You've proved this because you received the word by faith as the word of God. And when the opposition and the persecution rose, you didn't let it stop you. 
but you kept moving forward because you believed what God said more than what you heard the others say. When you receive God's word by faith, Christian, you persevere in his work because he is the one working in you. Ask yourself today, Christian, are you receiving the word of God by faith that you might persevere in obedience? Or are you halting your life to go say, God, this is hard. I'm not sure I can continue this. And until I get a word from you, I'm not going to move forward. To persevere. No matter what presses against you. Are you looking to God's word for what you need? Lord, you know I have this need in my life. I want you to provide it. But you never seek his word out to know how he's going to provide it. What he's going to replace it with that's better. Why he doesn't want you to have that. Or why he wants you to have that. Where he's leading you in regards to that. Are you seeking the will of God by his word for what you need in all of life? Friends, when God's word is received by faith, it produces more to strengthen you that you might persevere in obedience. (coughs) Excuse me. The fourth trajectory that we see today, verses 17 to 35, is simply this. A sacrifice of obedience that delights in joy of the gospel glory. A sacrifice of obedience that delights in the joy of gospel glory. Look at verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. That no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and your labor would be in vain. See, what Paul's talking about is not only his sacrifice that had to be made, but their sacrifice that has been made because of their own faith. And he says this, before he was ready to leave, he was torn away by threat and opposition. He knew it was the right thing to do to leave Thessalonica, but he didn't like it. Even the threats that were against him, he still didn't like it. God uses his people, friends, to accomplish his purposes and his plan. And sometimes the way he begins a work is not the way he continues a work. When we persevere in obedience, we can be certain that any sacrifice we must make will produce greater delight in the joy we receive from God for his glory. I began my gospel ministry long before I probably should have. 
But really, I was serving in the church with the title. At the age of 19, I became a summer youth minister. Basically, I thought, I'll take them fishing. We'll do some frog gigging and play some games, and I'll get some free food. Right? And that's what we did. I didn't have a clue what I was doing other than I'd seen my parents do it all my life. And from that time, 1989, May, Kristen and I have enjoyed many rewarding relationships at the churches we've been blessed to serve in. And it was hard to leave each of those places because of the things that we saw God do there. But when the Lord leads on, it becomes wrong to stay. Many we still regularly communicate with today as dear friends that God has richly blessed us through the years. But each time we've left at his leading, we've learned he quickly delights us and the church probably more than us in his will. Friends, obeying the Lord can be one of the greatest challenges in life. There's no question about this. What seems in a moment to be the most difficult tearing away can become the greatest glory and deepest joy. And I am confident that this is what Paul is telling the Thessalonians. Why? Because what God did after he left was far more than he had done while he was there. And Paul knew that the call of God on his own life transcended what God wanted to do in Thessalonica. But what God wanted to do and was doing in Thessalonica was not in some way second rate for he was working in his people. And this is true for all of God's children. We often hold the idea that when something works, we shouldn't mess with it. But friends, just because God used one to start or to strengthen the work doesn't mean he can't continue differently. Christians should be people who live most fully in the moment. But we should never hallow that moment to hold it over God's head in order to get our own way. Sacrifices will be required of us as we live in obedience to the Lord. Romans 12, 2 reminds us our whole life is to be lived as a sacrifice, is it not? An offering to the Lord. And I tell you, the, the, the sacrificial lamb doesn't get to determine how the sacrifice goes. They're offered up, fully surrendered, fully submitted to the one making the sacrifice. And for the one to whom the sacrifice is offered. As we walk with Jesus, we may not long for or even like some of the sacrifices we must make, but we do learn to accept them without whining and complaining, mostly. Without throwing selfish tantrums and demanding our own way and saying to God, This isn't fair to me. Let me tell you what's not fair what He's already done for us. And yet he did it gladly. Rather, longing for more Jesus grows a trust in him that teaches us to grieve deeply even as we love deeply. Knowing that our hope is never lost because his joy will be greater than grief or sacrifice. Have you ever pondered the blessing of grieving, friends? Of all the ways Christians can be a potent witness in the world... 
Our grieving is one of the grandest witnesses that we can have. Because though we grieve, we are never without hope. And that's something the world doesn't get. I propose to you that grieving is an expression of love and trust in the face of loss and change. As much as delight is an expression of love in receiving and growing. When loss or change occurs, many fall into a cave of anger. They get entangled by a net of bitterness. Or even worse, they get stuck in the quicksand of self-pity. But grief and delight, delight excuse me, both express faith and hope in God to produce an increasing joy in Jesus. Christianity doesn't make us eternal proverbial morning people. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Hey! No! I mean, we need the balance in the world. There's no doubt about that. But that's not Christianity, friends. Sometimes Christianity is ashes upon our head and deep mourning and grieving because of the loss that we've encountered and the pain that has been endured. It doesn't threaten our faith in God. It demonstrates our faith in God. Grieving is not something that we should avoid, though I propose the world is trying to steal grieving and the grace of it away from us. We should grieve and mourn deeply for the loss that we encounter in this life and, yea, even the loss of life. But never without hope. What a blessing God has given to us to grieve with grace and hope as an expression of love. Longing for more Jesus means we accept the sacrifice he leads us to make in order to receive a far greater joy of the glory in him that we will receive. Friends, are you hung up on having to give something up? For him. You know, this is one of the biggest reasons people don't want to accept Christ. Well, I'll have to give a bunch of stuff up. And they put forward all these secondary excuses and they use secondary rationales for a primary decision of life. How about you? Are you hung up on having to give something up? Are you upset with God about the loss of your life? Are you upset with the change that's taken place in some way? Are you you mad or or growing bitter? Just a little bit of harbored bitterness. You say, you know what, mostly I'm okay in life, but there's there's just a seed of bitterness that remains. Let me tell you what seeds do. They grow big trees. They grow deep roots. You don't get the seed out. You won't get the weed out. Is there any bit of bitterness towards God? Towards his people? Towards something in life that you're harboring, pandering to, allowing to remain because it gives you justification for a little bit of a pity party every now and then when the world turns you to look that way. Or are you looking to Jesus through the gospel to live as a sacrifice and go, Lord, I don't like this, to be quite honest. But you know what? 
I'm not going to talk about it and so cultivate my dislike for it. I'm going to look to the things that you're bringing to my life, the things that you're doing in the midst of this. And I want to ask this, if you took it away from me, if you kept me from it, or if in some other way you're wanting me to to manage it or steward it in such a way that I don't necessarily agree with, I want to obey you because through that I want to believe that you have something greater for me than I could produce in the way I would choose to do it or hold on to it. Are you looking to Jesus through the gospel to live as a sacrifice and to receive the joy and the glory of all God brings through that sacrifice? Friends, God leads you to more when you embrace the sacrifice of obedience in order to delight in the joy of His glory for you. God leads us by the gospel to produce more fruitfulness, to persevere in obedience, and to delight in pure gospel glory. Where are you, Christian, on these trajectories? Are you moving from where you are to where God is leading you like a loving, heavenly Father? Let's pray.